If you have your Bibles with you, or if there's one nearby and you're faster than your neighbor, grab it and open it up to the near the end of the Bible. We're going to be looking today at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, or 1 Peter, as it may show up in your table of contents, if, you, if that helps you find it a little better. It's not quite to Revelation, but it's close to the end. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. When was the last time you said to yourself or someone close by, what am I doing here? We don't ask that question when things are good. We don't ask that question when we feel at home, when we feel at home in our own skin. We don't ask that question when everything feels right and comfortable. What am I doing here? We ask the question, some of you may even be asking it this morning. We ask that question when things aren't right, when we don't feel at ease, when we show up to the place where we thought there would be an apartment waiting for us and it is not there. We, we ask that question when we're sitting halfway, halfway through the first lecture of a class. We have no idea what's being said, and we have no idea how to find out what's being said. What am I doing here? In some ways, I want to use that as a summary of 1 Peter this morning as we consider the first 12 verses. You see, in the first verse Peter's going to, that I'm going to read in just a minute, Peter's going to tell us that he's writing to people that he's calling exiles or sojourners. People who are living in a place that doesn't feel like home. Throughout the book, we hear him reference again and again the reality of suffering. Writing to Christians outside of Jerusalem, outside of really the, the, land, the land that God had promised his people in the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea and in the Asian region there. Writing to, them, writing to them about the reality of the suffering that they either have faced or are about to face. These are people who are following Jesus in such a way that it's obvious to their neighbors that they stand out as different. It's in those situations that we might find ourselves with them asking, what am I doing here? With that in mind, I want to consider now the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through, though, you have seen his, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, 
in the things that, that have now been announced to you through, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Father, again this morning, we pray that by your grace and by your presence, you would send out your light and your truth, that they would take us to the place where you are, that we might see you. Father, there is much in this text this morning, as there is every morning, every time we open it. We can read it with our eyes, we can understand it with our minds to some extent, but we ask that by your Spirit, your light would shine in such a way that we, your people, together would be changed. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray all of this. Amen. Uh, My latest round of feeling old every time I head to campus includes the reality that most of the students that I work with and serve do not remember the events of 9-11. The question, where were you when the towers fell, doesn't mean a whole lot to them because they don't remember where they were when the towers fell. Many of us, of course, do because those, an event like that has had a huge impact on the nation in which we live. It's a part of our collective consciousness. It's the thing that we remember together. An event like that has had an impact that every time you travel, you're reminded, if you remember before what it was like before, you remember the changes and you remember the realities of living in light of this thing that happened that has changed life for all of us. Even as a young child, I remember my mom taking my younger sister and I to the airport to greet my dad because he would travel often and when his plane would get in at a decent time, we would go together. And I remember being able to run right to the gate in the window and watch the plane taxi in and land and be able to wave as my dad walked down onto the jetway. It's not that way anymore. Now, that's a very small, in many ways, insignificant difference that we live with now is actually the rest of the world would acknowledge that that's a very insignificant reality. Because it's impacted our country, an event like that has impacted our country in ways much greater and much more significant than that. We've lost loved ones. It's changed career paths for potentially even many of you in this room have been affected directly by these events. But any time an event like that happens, it has that effect, doesn't it? It's this thing that we can't change, we can't undo, and it sticks with us. For some of us, it's, it's an event like that. Others of us, it's the, it's the deaths of Philando Castile, of Freddie Gray, of Tamir Rice, of Michael Brown, or countless others who have been killed. It's the remember, rem, remembrance of Sandy Hook and Columbine, the remembrance of Jonesboro and Paducah, and other events that have changed the way we look at even the daily realities of the world in which we live. The big one for me before 9-11 was the Oklahoma City bombing because I remember sitting like many of you are as a sophomore or so, as a college student and as a sophomore in college, sitting in a congregation, seeing one of the elders of the church that I went to grieved because of family members that he knew there and the personal connection he had to Oklahoma City when that happened. We look at these events and we can't undo them. They have an effect on us. Many times they at least have some effect on public policy, or many would like them to have some effect on public policy, and we hope for change, but the reality is no amount of forward-looking change can undo what's been done. This morning, I want you to imagine with me, what if we could undo those things? What would it be like 
to go back in time before those events happened? What would it be like if we had the ability to live again in a world where 9-11 hadn't happened? Where senseless violence did not happen the way that it does? Where kids were not killed? Where public safety was, did not feel a threat that it may feel even today? What would that feel like? I want to take you there because it's the picture that the Apostle Peter gives us of hope. If you look with me at verse 3, it's what we see there directly as he, as he describes what's happening and what reality is for us. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Look at the next phrase. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the foundation of, of Christian hope is this event of the resurrection that we celebrated with Christians around the world just a week ago, and we celebrate again this morning. Because the reality of, revel, of resurrection, of being brought to life from the dead, is the reality of those things being undone. In the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, it's the reality of everything sad becoming untrue. It's the reality of being, to go, being able to go back because death has been conquered by resurrection. He calls it there a living hope. It's not a fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It is something that is alive and growing in the people of God because of the resurrection of the dead. In fact, he uses that phrase, caused us to be born again. He has regenerated us. He has brought life where there was not life. This, beloved, is the reality of hope in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Of those things becoming one day becoming untrue. Of living in a world where that, has not, no, that is no longer affecting how we live on a daily basis. This, beloved, is hope. The question, though, I want to keep asking this morning is, so what are we doing here? If that's the promise we have, it, 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 let's, let's be honest, it sounds too good to be true. But if that's the promise we have, what are we doing here? As the passage unfolds, the first thing I want you to see is that we're waiting together. We're waiting together even with a humble confidence. We're waiting because hope is something that looks towards the future. We don't hope that we have something that we already have that is already ours. Hope is about something we do not yet fully have. It's about looking forward. Notice verse 4, how he speaks as he unpacks this idea of hope. Um, as he continues through the passage in verse 4, he says, we, we have this living hope in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This hope is, is he, he uses this word, this idea of inheritance, to describe something that is promised to us. We might even think of, the, think of it as legally bound to become ours one day, but inherit, an inheritance is not something that is yet fully ours. He describes it as, as imperishable. It's not subject to decay or death. It is undefiled. It is pure. It is untainted. It is not corrupt. It is unfading. It won't lose its beauty or its value. And as, if we needed him to say more, he says yet more. He says it's kept in heaven for you. It is in the presence of God waiting for you one day to be revealed. This is waiting for a place. It's what we see in the Old Testament. This idea of an inheritance is what shows up 
almost from the beginning pages of the Bible, as God speaks to a man named Abram and promises him a place that would be his possession. And as the generations of God's people come after Abraham, the promise is made, you will have an inheritance, you will have an inheritance. And for the people of God in the Old Testament, the focus was on the land that would be theirs, that God had promised to them, that he eventually delivered to them. And as they were allotting the divisions of that land for the different families, the message was, this is yours, this has value, because this is part of your inheritance as the people of God. And yet we look at how he describes it here as unfading, as undefiled, as, un- as imperishable. And especially through the book of Hebrews chapter 11, what we see over and over again is that this place is more than what we experience now with our senses. It speaks of being in the very presence of God for all eternity in this renewed creation. That we would be, that it is an eternal inheritance that awaits us. This is in the future. But notice as well, jump down to verse 5 with me if you're following along. Because he adds this picture there. He says, who by God's, God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He speaks of an inheritance, but he also speaks of a salvation. A salvation that's ready, it's prepared. It's like you're, you're, you can smell the, the, the aroma from the kitchen as your parents are calling you to the dinner table, but you're not yet seated. The food is ready, but the meal has not yet been served. This is the salvation for which we wait. It's the deliverance of God from all that is wrong in the world. It is not yet here. We are waiting this. I don't know if you remember the, the movie from the, the mid, mid to late 90s called The Truman Show. But it's a, TV, it's a movie about a reality TV show where the central character, Truman Burbank, doesn't know he's on reality TV. You see through the, the wonder of modern technology, they built this giant sphere, this globe type thing in this, in this place in a desert. And they've created a, a, a fictitious town in it. And they place this little boy in it at his birth to be born. Everybody else in the, in the entire show is an actor. Everything about it is constructed false. But Truman has no idea as he grows up that it's, that it's not a real place, that he's on TV. And one of, the, one of the things that we hear throughout the movie is that Sea Haven, I think it's called, is the best place on earth. Because you see, as Truman grows up and wants to travel, they have to convince him over and over and over again that he doesn't want to leave this place because he can't, because it's fake. And if he were to leave, he would find that out. The whole thing is constructed to keep him in this little place. To help him think that this is the best place on earth. That this is ultimate life. That there's no better place that he could ever want to be. He has everything he wants in this little bubble. I'll let you see the movie to find out how that unfolds. As I'm sure some of you can guess. But that's the reality for us. We live, beloved, thinking that what we have here and now, what we see see with with our eyes, what we experience with our senses, is the only thing that is real, that it is the truest thing that we could experience. And yet to live now with hope says no. To live now with hope is to wait for something else. I want to tell you the life that you live now is not perfect and it will not be. It's not complete and it never will be. There is more that awaits you. And I tell you that because I want you to know that your longing, your hunger, your distraction, your unsettledness, it all points to something that you cannot fully find here in this life, in this place. It's not because there's no value in life here. There is tons of value in life here. 
The Bible makes every point in every page to say that life is important and life matters. What we do in this place, in this time, matters. And yet, the message is there is more for which we await. This world has been distorted so that it doesn't work right. And you don't work right. You're waiting for an inheritance. Know that you're waiting for something. And know that your salvation is not yet complete. Jesus said on the cross, as we heard two weeks ago, it is finished, it is done. There's nothing more to be accomplished. Absolutely. Can we have the assurance in God's work that there's nothing more that we could do to accomplish our salvation? Absolutely. And yet, we live in this place where life hurts. We live in this place where we harm one another, even on, in the closest of relationships. We don't have to pretend that life is complete now, that everything is okay. Your salvation is not yet done. You are a work in progress. What are we doing here? We're waiting. We're waiting with confidence. But we keep asking that question, right? Notice, as we keep looking through the passage, look at verses 6 through, six through 8, 6 and 8 in particular. Because in these verses twice, he speaks about this reality of joy. He says at the beginning of verse 6, if I can find it, there it is. In this you rejoice. And then again in verse 8, um, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Again, Peter's tripping over himself to describe the realities of this life, the realities of joy. There is substance to the Christian faith. There is substance that's not, that will withstand the storm. You see, I wonder for us, if, 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 and if, if Christianity is something that's relatively new to you, or maybe very distant to you, I wonder if it feels like a thought that's too good to be true. We talk about a future inheritance, we talk about a future salvation. That all seems pie in the sky. What about life here and now? I wonder, and, and I, I don't want to make a straw man here, but I, I wonder if at times Christianity feels like playing with a wiffle ball, playing baseball with a wiffle ball. It's great for the backyard because damage will be minimal. You can do cool pitches because the wind roll going through the ball as it flies to the batter. You can hit it with all your might and you're probably not going to break anything. And yet at the end of the day, you know it's just for the backyard. At the end of the day, you know you've got to put it away and get on with the rest of life. It's not a baseball that's hard and dense and you can put all your might into it and it'll travel a great distance. I wonder if Christianity feels like playing wiffle ball for you or for the world around us. The promises are too good to be true, but at the end of the day, what do we really have? In the midst of that, Peter's willing to talk about joy that is inexpressible. Joy that we cannot put into words. Why? Because not only are we waiting, but we're also enduring. Notice the sobering caveats that he gives us here, starting in verse 6 and 7. Um, in, first of all, in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Part of enduring with hope is grieving. Part of enduring with hope is honestly facing that we lose things that we don't want to let go of. We grieve over death, rightfully. We grieve over disappointment. We, we grieve over relationships that we thought would last, but are falling apart and on their last leg. We grieve. We hurt. 
And he describes this process of grieving by describing the process that, that gold would go through to be purified. And he talks about it being tested. And we have to lay aside a thought of, I'm proving my, my value here. I'm proving my worth in the classroom. It's not that kind of test. Because when he talks about precious gold being tested, he's saying it's burned by fire to reveal the value inside of it. Because there's all kinds of other stuff that gets mixed into it. And so it gets put, it gets, it's set on fire to burn off everything that is not of value that's a part of it. That stuff that gets lost is, is what we grieve. It is the reality of living a world that, that is not perfect, that is not fully done in what God has to do. He speaks of this process of purifying and saying, you will grieve. I love that the Bible is this honest about my life. I love that the Bible is this honest to say, yes, there is eternal hope that is unfading and undefiled and will not go away and nothing can ever happen to it. And yet it's willing to acknowledge that my experience isn't quite that every day. It's not quite there. But notice the other thing that he does in this section in verses 8 and 9. He talks about belief. He talks about not being able to see and yet believing. He talks about this reality that there, there is something to the Christian faith and it is this thing called faith. We endure because we believe. Because we know that there is more than what we can experience with our senses that is true. That is, as, as we hear of God that we do not see, as we hear of a Savior seated next to Him on His right hand that we do not see, by faith, we know that it's true. By faith that God gives us, that He is working in us, we believe. And that's, beloved, how we endure. It's looking honestly at the world around us and saying, this is not right. And yet there is more that awaits us. There is reality beyond what we see. There is hope. You need to know, you may need to know this morning that you have the freedom to be sad. That you have the freedom to grieve what is lost. That you have the right and the freedom to be angry about what you see on the news every day. And what you experience in the workplace. You have a right to experience the, the reality that says I'm not treated as a fully human being in this life for whatever reason. You have a right to say, my boss is treating me unfairly and unjustly, and this is wrong. It's part of this grieving process. Christianity is not running and hiding and pretending that everything is okay. And if that's what you're here for, I hope you hear far more than that, because that's not what it is. It is not escapism. It is not ignoring the realities around you. It is facing them head on by faith. You don't have to pretend that this world must satisfy every longing that you have. You don't have to pretend that the relationship that you're really hoping will, come, will happen will make you fully happy for the rest of your life. And you can look at the relationship that you're in and say, I thought, I thought, I thought this would be it, and it's not it, and I don't know what to do. It's because that's part of living in the world in which we live. But the promise set before us is endurance with joy. It is the thing that God by His Spirit is working out in us. Even at the end of verse 5, He says not only is the inheritance being kept, but He's saying you are being guarded. God is present with you and He's at work in your life doing these things, teaching you this, testing you as gold is tested. And it is painful. And it is real. What are we doing here? 
last thing I want you to see is what shows up in verses 10 through 12. This may come a little bit strange, but we're waiting, we're enduring, but we're also feeding on the past. Notice where he goes beginning in verse 10. This, is, this fascinates me. He says, concerning this salvation, concerning everything I've been talking about, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or thing the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter is speaking about the Old Testament writers here. Those who have gone before in the faith, who spoke God's truth to God's people, and yet talked about future days, talked about the coming of the Lord, talked about the Messiah, the servant who would come one day and make all things right. Those who labored to bring God's truth to God's people for the present and the future are the prophets. We feed on them. Part of living with hope is hearing what has gone before. He points this out to say God has been speaking. Through the whole of this book, God has been speaking. And through these prophets, through these men and women who prophesied before. He's saying to the, the people who are receiving this for the very first time, God has shown himself faithful. Hope for the future makes sense because of what has come in the, come in the past. That God has always been speaking. And we knew that the days that we're experiencing now would one day be coming. We look to the past and we live based on the past. But then we get to verse 12. And let this blow your mind what he says here. Because he's speaking again of the Old Testament prophets. We get to verse 12 and he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He's saying to first century Christians... People have been writing and prophesying for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was for you. It was for you. Even the angels are fascinated by what they're seeing as they watch from heaven. Because it was not for them that Christ came to die. It was for God's people. Peter's writing to these exiles and saying, this is for you. You know what? He's also saying it to you and me. He's saying, this is for you. That when the gospel is proclaimed, when the Old Testament is read, when the New Testament is read, when the message of Jesus goes forth, it is God speaking with power that none can match and that none can withstand. It changes lives. It changes the world. And one day, fully and finally, it will change the world. It's not new to us that we don't walk away from the past, but we may not always see it. Think about those of you who are into books and stuff. Think about the classic works that you see on the movie screen. And I'm not talking about Kenneth Branagh versions of Shakespeare. I'm talking about movies like Clueless and Ten Things I Hate About You and The Lion King, all of which were based on Shakespeare's works. I'm thinking about Oh Brother Where Art Thou and Pretty Woman and Rent and Roxanne and West Side Story and we could go on and on and on and on and on again. We don't, know, we don't walk away from the past. We do keep doing the same things over and over again. And the things that seem to be true that resonate with humanity stick with humanity for time and time and time and time again. How much more is the very word of God going to do that with God's people? How much more is the very word of God for us to continue to soak ourselves in to wrestle with, to struggle with. 
Because part of what I'm saying is books like Leviticus and Numbers, where there's a whole lot about rashes on your body and what to do with them. This is saying that is not of no value. This has value. Because somehow it points to Jesus. So let's wrestle together with what it means and what it means for us today. Because the promise is that that's part of you and I embracing hope. Is feeding on the past, feeding on what God goes before us. The whole of the Bible comes from God and is Him speaking to you, His people, about His faithfulness, about His ability to keep His word. Do you see yourself in its pages? Do you see your story in its pages? Because we find people who are exiles, who are living in places they never thought they would live, they couldn't have even found on a map before. We find people who suffer for years and years and years and years. We find people who suffer and are blamed for their own suffering. We find people rejoicing over the birth of an unexpected child. We find people rejoicing over the provision of God that they didn't think would come from anywhere. That's just a hint of what's there. Just, do you see yourself in any of those stories? We feed on the past. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? I heard the story a few, a few weeks ago in a podcast that I listened to about Henry Ford's attempt to build his own little colony in the middle of two million square miles of Brazilian rainforest in the 1920s. Henry Ford was running the Ford Motor Company, of course. It was named after him. And they needed an abundant source of rubber to make the tires and other parts of the car. And so he had this idea, and the Brazilian government was, was seemingly willing to work with him, and so they gave him essentially two million square miles of rainforest. And he developed this plantation that he called Fordlandia. And it was a miserable failure. It didn't work. Because what Ford had to do, if, if you don't know this, he, apparently he was a bit of a control freak. He wanted everything just the way he would want it to be. So he entered the, this Brazilian culture in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, and he set up a church, and he set up a hall for square dancing. He essentially made a small Midwestern town that he was familiar with and put it in the middle of the rainforest. He outlawed alcohol because he was a teetotaler. He was a vegetarian, and so he limited what the meat that they could eat. In order for efficiency, he, he made all the dining, the dining halls for the workers cafes, cafeteria style, which they didn't like. And he didn't understand why nobody would come square dancing at his square dancing hall. He was imposing his will on this world where he was the foreigner, and it failed miserably. Even to the extent of when, it, when, he, when he tried to plant the, the, the rubber trees to grow what he needed, he didn't listen to the experts because he thought he knew better. And so he planted them too close together, and from what I understand, that made it ripe for bugs to grow and fester, and this whole project fell apart. And he tried for decades to make it work, and it never did what he wanted it to do. I tell you that because as human beings, we try to impose our will on the world in which we live, and it doesn't work. We try, to, we try to live in this place as if we are the ones who are in charge, as if we can set the standards, we can set the patterns of life, we can say what's right and wrong, and others in our lives have to live that way. No, we're exiles. 
but, it, but the problem is not that the earth is the problem. The problem is not that the world is the problem. The problem is that we as human beings are the problem. We spurn the rule of God. We question his authority. We reject his authority. That's what sin is. We try and run and hide and live for ourselves. But for the believer, there's more than that. There's more than a world falling apart, though it is, and it's our fault. Think back even to verse 1 where I started, where he simply begins this letter to say this in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. What Peter is saying to us is that in the midst of the world it's falling apart that we are doing our best to control and we are doing miserably at it. That the believers are the true exiles in this place because God has entered this place He's loved us from before time began. The question to, to what does it mean for him to foreknow, what does it mean to call his people the elect? When the, when the people of God answered that, asked God that question in the book of Deuteronomy, what God said was, I love you because I love you because I love you. It is bound up in the mystery of God that he would love his people to this extent. That he would send his son to die. And the sprinkling of the blood here is the sprinkling of a sacrifice on the people of God that would set us apart. Not because we're beautiful, not because we're worthy, but because God loves us. And His Spirit is present sanctifying, making us to be what we are not yet. Changing us to be more like Jesus and setting us apart for that purpose. What are we doing here? It's that. Beloved, you're living as an exile. You feel it. You're waiting for something. I know you're waiting. Peter wants us to know what we're waiting for. And it's hard. It is endurance. It is a long haul. But the joy that you've experienced is real in Jesus. You are grieving, but you are yet believing. And we look to the past constantly. It's why we gather for worship. It's why this book matters to us. Because God is speaking. Beloved, if you are in Christ, this is you. You have this living hope. You have been born again. And God is making you new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it, is often feels, it often feels like your word is too good to be true. And yet as we push it, as we question it, as we study it, as we wrestle with it, we find that it is more true than we could ever imagine. Father, teach us to live with that hope the hope of the future, the hope of the present, and the hope of the past. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this.